Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim takes us through the birth narrative in Luke chapter 2, as we see the inspiration for the song, Joy to the World. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Uh, If you have a Bible, we are going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2. We have four biographies on the life of Jesus that are in our Bible. They're referred to as Gospels, uh, and uh, Luke is one of them. Uh, Luke uh, has a specific mission in mind as he writes his Gospel. Uh, Luke's a doctor by trade, and his uh, he names right out of the gates that his concern is with telling the story, getting all the details right. So Luke is really careful with the details and getting the chronology and giving enough of uh, the landscape of things so that we know exactly what's going on. We understand who Jesus is. Uh, so that's Luke's agenda. Uh, if, you're, if you're with us for the first time, so if you're visiting with us for baptism or if it's your very first time with us, uh, we have been counting down to Christmas and we've been looking at the songs of Christmas. Um, we've said that uh, Christmas is the one time of the year that we are all singing the same songs. Many of them are songs that uh, have Christian origin and are linked back to these stories. Uh, the song we just sang, Joy to the World, uh, actually comes, the, the, the song is rooted in a specific story, and that's the story that we're going to read this morning, the story that Luke tells, uh, the most famous version of the Christmas story, um, the most famous uh, Luke is Luke's. And so um, we're going to look at that song and all the things that inspired the song this morning. Now, just a warning Uh, Last week I said we're going into some history, and we went into uh, King Herod, and we looked at a bunch of historical contexts and all those things. Um, This morning we're going to go even deeper into the history, and uh, and that will just be warm up for what we do next week on uh, Christmas Eve, where we go even deeper into it all. So if you love history, uh, it's not much of a warning. It's a hey, we get to do history. But if you don't, I apologize. It's a it's a lot of history this morning, Um, but. I think that sometimes what can happen with some of these stories is that they can become so familiar that they actually become unfamiliar. Uh, it's the, uh, one of the gentlemen I love listening to, a rabbi, David Foreman, refers to it as the lullaby effect. We sing lullabies so often and they seem so calm that we can forget what we're actually singing. Rockabye baby in a treetop, when the wind blows the baby. Like, like we forget, like, wow, that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, gruesome some song to sing to our little kids. Uh, and that can happen with the, the Christmas story especially. We can forget by making things warm, fuzzy sweaters and gingerbread houses and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and all those things. We can actually make it so like fuzzy, cozy, warm that we can actually miss the power in the initial story that inspired it all. So Uh, This morning, we're going back into the history. We're going deeper into the history. Um, My hope today is if we could strip it all back, strip all of the the beautiful traditions, all of the, you know, hot cocoa and yule logs and all the things uh, that we can get at. What is the the heart of the story? Where did the story come out of? What, when the first, when Luke sits down to write the story and when the first audience receives this story, how do they hear it? Um, So I want to show you a few things this morning. Now, um, uh, this one, as I was putting it together, I realized this is probably like, it's just too much for one service. So this is like, 
We'll do our best to wrap things up this morning, but then uh, this really is kind of like part one, and next week will be part two. Uh, so the story's kind of, we'll continue it in uh, Christmas Eve, and we'll hit part two on Christmas Eve. So uh, this is just going to be kind of part one, and then the real payoff will be next week um, when we get back into it. Now, uh, I'll, here's how we'll work through this one. I want to begin by reading the story, and then we'll do some history, like, wow, 25 minutes or so of, of history, and then we'll come back to the story, just a little bit of the story, and I, my hope is that if we do the history part right, when we read the story again, some new things might pop that we didn't see before. And so that's my hope. So we'll do the story, then we'll do some history, and then we'll read the story again. Uh, this is Luke's rendition. Last week we looked at Matthew's version of the story, and Matthew really focuses on King Herod because Matthew is writing a local audience. Matthew's writing a Jewish audience living in Israel. But Luke is writing a global audience. And so Luke is going to zoom out the lens a little bit further. Uh, Let's read the story together. It's uh, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Crinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That's our story. That's the most familiar Christmas story. That's the Charlie Brown. This one they read in Charlie Brown, right? This is the one uh, many of us grew up. Uh, if you've got a chunk of Bible memorized, there's a good chance it's this chunk of Bible. You did it in a nativity play back in like fifth grade or something. Uh, this is the famous story. Um, but Luke gives us some details that it's really easy to read over the details and think, oh, those are just details. But when Luke begins the story by saying, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. They may seem like random details, but Luke includes them for a reason. Uh, those details, just those details. We now know enough to have the entire background of our story painted for us. Uh, the story of of shepherds and angels and mangers. Uh, Behind the whole story, Luke tells us there is an empire. Uh, And he uh, uses this language of uh, this was the Roman world. At the time of Jesus, at the birth of Jesus, the Romans ruled the world. Who are the Romans? Um, Apparently, we think about the Romans a lot, uh, men, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the TikTok challenge or the, I think it's on Instagram too, but apparently men think about the Roman Empire a lot, uh, uh, apparently embarrassingly numbers a lot. My hope is that if you are part of South Harbor Church, you think about the Roman Empire a little bit more 
than the average man. Um, we talk about the Romans a lot because uh, as the, the church was on its rise, the Roman Empire was on its rise. And uh, the Romans had the most sophisticated government, the most sophisticated military, the largest military industrial complex that the world has ever seen, arguably uh, even, even outranking our military in terms of what it could do then. Uh, the, the Roman, I'll show you a map I showed last week, the Roman world at its peak extended from Britain all the way out to India. These are the Romans, absolutely massive. Last week we talked about taxation and how do you build a military and how do you build an empire. Today, I want to think a little bit about the name that Luke name drops. He talks about a man named Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor. Uh, Caesar Augustus. Um, now, uh, who is Caesar Augustus? Is, when Luke drops it, is it just some random kind of like trivia thing? Um, or does Luke actually need us to understand that this is going to be the whole backdrop of his entire biography or gospel of Jesus? I think it's the latter. I think when Luke name drops Caesar Augustus, and specifically the language that he's going to use right on the back of Caesar Augustus, he's trying to clue his audience in. And because they grew up in this world, they would have picked up on some things that uh, apparently men might, you might pick up on this because you think about the Roman Empire. But everyone else, we may, you may not. Uh, and so who is Caesar Augustus? Now, um, to understand that, we have to back up just a little bit further before, C I said Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor, um, but he wasn't the first person to lead Rome. Before Caesar Augustus, there was a man who, you know the answer to this, uh, who uh, led the Roman Republic at the time. Anybody know the name of this man? Julius Caesar. Uh, you know, it's like, what is it, eighth grade English class? Right, we, we Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. Now, um, What's important to know about Julius Caesar is that Rome is not yet an empire, but it's an expanding republic. And, uh, and yet there's some checks and balances that he has to go through. He has to go through the parliament and the senate to get things passed. He does not have the power that Augustus is going to have to dominate and change the world, but he's got a lot of power. But he doesn't have ultimate power, which is probably good news, right? He's got extra time to dream up things like the hot and ready pizza. Um, <laughs> Cheesy. The Caesar salad. Remember that uh, haircut from George Clooney that was popular in 1996? The Caesar. <laughs> I should remember, I think it was like 96. That was all the rage. It was that and, and Jennifer Aniston's haircut at the time. It was like all you could find. Uh, the, but Julius Caesar, um, he is, uh, he's, he's not going to have the power of future emperors but he is going to be wildly successful and wildly exceptionally well-loved by the people. The Roman people loved this man. In fact, they love him so much that in the year 42 BC, so 42 years or so before Jesus, uh, they declare, the Roman Senate, declares that Julius Caesar is a god in the flesh. They voted. God in the flesh. Uh, now, uh, every world leader faces the same problem. Who's going to take over the kingdom when I die? Like, that's the, that's the issue. Or, or who's going to carry on my legacy after I'm done uh, leading? Who's going to take over? And most of world history has answered that question the same. 
Almost uh, every country, every nation, state, or every even tribe has answered that question the same way. Who will take over my empire, my kingdom, my legacy? My oldest son will. Because that's been how most people have answered that question. Turns out that was Julius Caesar's, uh, he expected the same thing. He has, uh, Julius Caesar has an affair with Cleopatra. Does that name sound familiar? Elizabeth Taylor, Cleopatra. Uh, Cleopatra, and they have a baby. And this baby, uh, his, his, like, this kid's going to take over everything. They name this baby Caesarian. Does that name sound familiar? Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, Caesarian, um, actually the word Caesarian means, you can't make this stuff up, little Caesar. I know. <laughs> Getting hungry, just talking about it. Uh, the, or maybe not, maybe not. Uh, Caesarian, um, the, actually we get our modern day C-sections, Caesarian sections, because uh, Caesarian, they couldn't figure out how to deliver this baby. I don't, I don't know exactly what was going on, but they couldn't figure it out. And so they, um, they eventually had to do a surgery. And they said that what is now pretty commonplace, um, but they said, this has never happened before. This is a miracle birth. And so now we, we, have, uh, we, we have miracles happening all around, but we don't call them miracles, but they called it a miracle. And in 34 BC, so eight years after his dad, Caesarian, is also granted the title of God. But there's a problem. Caesarian, little Caesar, going to take over the whole Roman, all of Julius Caesar's thing. Little Caesar dies. Uh, at the age of 17, little Caesar dies. Um, he's killed by a man named Papa John. Um, I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> cheesy. Cheesy. Uh, he dies. He dies. So what do you do when your so-called God... <laughs> When your so-called God dies, I like that you like dad humor. It's like bad dad humor. Uh, he dies. Uh, so what do you do when your so-called God, the guy who's going to take over everything, dies? Thankfully, um, or maybe not so thankfully, but Julius Caesar has an answer to this uh, problem. Before Julius, Julius Caesar will die, he names his nephew, a guy by the name of Octavian, to be his adopted son. So he kind of adopts him. And his adopted son is going to take over the empire, or the republic at this point. Uh, Octavian's going to take it all over. Uh, then, then Julius Caesar dies. Uh, history gold star, if anyone knows when Julius Caesar dies. Beware the Ides of March. He dies on the Ides of March. Uh, now the, the Roman project is in the hands of this, uh, this guy Octavian, Caesar's, adopt, Caesar's adopted nephew, uh, who is only... 19 years old at the time. So he's, he's a young guy, and now he's in charge of this entire Roman project, this Roman Republic. He's got big shoes to fill. Uh, and so if you're Octavian, you got an issue. How do you get people to listen to you? How do you get people to respect you? You're young. I, um, I was told this morning uh, when I introduced myself as pastor, I got a, oh, you're, but you're so young. I've not gotten that in a long time. I'm 41, almost 41. Um, but like he's young. If I'm young, he's young, young, 19 years old. How do you get everyone to follow you, to listen to you, to respect you? Octavian has an idea. It's a shocking idea um, if you have 19-year-olds. Here's his idea. What if I throw a party? <laughs> Seriously. He, uh, he decides the way I can get everyone on my team is I'll throw this massive party. I've got all this money. I've got all this power now. I'll throw an Olympic-sized party, a big sporting event kind of party. 
Uh, and uh, we'll invite everyone. And people have always liked sports, especially when you're on the winning team. Honolulu Blue. We won, we won last night. Um, when you're on the, sorry, Chicago fans, you did beat us, but not for long. Um, so he throws a big party, and it's a big sporting event kind of party. Now, during the party, this is hard to believe, but this happened. You can find this throughout the historical record. During the party, a comet appears in the sky. Octavian sees the comet, and he says, oh, this is an opportunity. So he turns to the senators who are standing next to him at the time, and he says, do you see that comet? That comet is my dad, Julius, who just died, ascending to the right hand of the god Zeus, where he will be seated to ascend to his throne, where he'll be seated at the right hand of the god Zeus. Some of you are like, where have I heard that? Where have I heard that? Yeah, this is what they said. Now, um, if his father is God, what does this now make him? The son of God? In fact, that's what he starts to call himself. He starts to refer to himself as the son of God or the, the, the son of the divine one. Now, um, things are pretty, pretty uh, weren't so easy for Octavian at first. If you know your Roman history, which apparently men do. Um, so women, I'll fill you in. Uh, um, but guys, apparently we think about this a lot. But it, if you're familiar with Roman history, uh, right after Julius Caesar dies, things are really messy. Uh, really messy. Uh, after Julius Caesar dies, the Roman Republic is thrown into what becomes a 13-year civil war. Uh, Mark Antony and Octavian kind of dueling it out for power for 13 years. Uh, We are now thrown into civil war. We are thrown into the sense of, okay, are we going to survive this? Financially, can we survive this? Our people are divided. How do we unite them again? Is the dream of Julius, the dream of Rome, now dead? Then there's a massive military victory known as the Battle of Actium. Mark Antony's defeated, uh, and Octavian wins. Now, this battle ushers in 44 years of peace, security, and stability uh, that will come to be known as Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Pax Romana is the golden age of Rome. Pax Romana uh, is when Rome gets rich, Rome gets powerful, Rome is growing. Rome goes from republic to empire in Pax Romana. And all of it is because of Octavian. He brings the people back together. So the Senate meets and they decide, okay, how do we say thank you to Octavian? He's young, but like he's got us out of this. How do we say thank you to him? Again, they vote, and they grant him a title. And the title they grant him is the title of Augustus. Light bulb moment. Ah. Uh, Augustus. Augustus means the illustrious one or the divine one. The divine one. Now, in addition to this, he also takes on the name of his adopted dad, Julius Caesar. And he becomes Caesar Augustus. The son of a god who is also God. That's the name Caesar Augustus. That's what it means. The son of a God who is also God. Again, 
Where have I heard this? Where have I heard this? Um, now, what happened is, and this is the backdrop of the entire Christmas story, the Romans begin to view Caesar Augustus as God with a capital G. Uh, they start calling him things like the savior of the world. They refer to his empire as salvation. There is a common uh, slogan that gets passed around from person to person. It shows up in our Bible. The common slogan that gets passed around is Caesar is Lord. It's like, good morning. Uh, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. This is the slogan that will get chanted when Jesus is going to be crucified. They chant Caesar is Lord. It's how you greet one another. His empire is salvation. He brings, uh, he, he br- he's the savior of the world. He's the son of God who is also God. Caesar is Lord. Now the biggest boast, you all follow me yet? Okay, again, I told you, I warned you history. Um, the biggest boast for Augustus was that he brought peace. He brought Pax Romana. That's how he became so famous. That's how he became so successful. Um, but what I want you to see is what kind of peace he brought. Uh, because Augustus' peace was peace that came at the end of a sword. Augustus' peace was peace if you were Roman, if you were elite, if you were rich. Um, but for everyone else, this peace didn't look so peaceful. Uh, a um, historian, a uh, first century historian named Tacitus, tells us that the aim of the Roman army was to punish, to avenge, and to terrify. The Romans killed young and old women and men and children. Uh, they, like, they spared no one. They, uh, from the rich, they stole money. From the poor, they plundered land. Uh, they robbed, butchered, and uh, killed, and they called it empire. Uh, they, they slaughtered, and they called it pox or peace. Uh, we have records just to kind of land this in Israel, we have records of a city known as, is a Greek city, known as Sepphoris. Uh, Sepphoris is about, depending on how you get there, about two and a half to three and a half miles from Nazareth, where Jesus grows up. Sepphoris is a Greek city. We have record that Sepphoris um, was burned to the ground shortly before the time of Jesus. It's burned to the ground, and 2,000 people are crucified on the spot. They would line the streets so that every time you would walk by, you would see your loved ones and you'd be reminded, do, you, do not mess with Rome. This will happen to you. Remember that word Sepphoris? We'll come back there next week. But uh, there's another town uh, known as Emmaus. Uh, we have records of Jesus, a biblical story of Jesus walking the, the road, the, meeting the two people walking to Emmaus after the resurrection. You know that story? Uh, Emmaus... Um, shortly uh, before the time of Jesus, uh, was absolutely destroyed, and hundreds of people, according, according to history, hundreds of people were crucified. Uh, a Roman general named Cassius uh, comes into Israel and enslaves 30,000 people all at one time. We go on and on. The city of Magdala is destroyed. Mary Magdalene comes from Magdala. Magda- you wonder why when we meet Mary Magdalene, she's on her own. She's like tormented. Her city's been destroyed shortly, and it's, it's the Romans, it's the Romans, it's the Romans. Augustus Pax Romana came at the end of a sword. It was mess with Rome, you get the sword. This was peace to the Romans. 
Uh, in fact, uh, notice how some of his contemporaries talk about this piece. Uh, first, a, a poet named Virgil says this. You, O Roman, remember to rule the nations with might. This will be your genius, to impose your way of peace, to spare the conquered and to crush the proud, to impose your way of peace. Uh, the Roman uh, historian Tacitus, uh, Tacitus says this. For miles around, he wasted the country with sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. Places sacred and profane were raised indifferently to the ground. Augustus' peace was only peace that came at the end of a sword. Uh, To Rome, peace and military victory were two sides of the same coin, quite literally. Uh, Here's a coin. On one side, you have divine, if you see it, It's in the Greek, but uh, divine Caesar, and you have his military victory on the other side. Speaking of coins, uh, before there was Fox News, CNN, or TikTok, Instagram, um, cable news, before we had ways of getting our news by turning on the news channels or dialing it up on the internet, the way you would pass along a message in an ancient world is you would mint coins. We have found Thousands of coins with Augustus' face on it. Uh, Jesus at one point will say, whose face is on the coin? Okay, then give, give him what he wants. But who is God? Give God what he wants. Okay, so uh, they would mint coins, and this is how you would spread a message. Uh, and we've got hundreds of these. And they say things like divine Caesar. Um, or this next one, remember that comet of Julius? You print the comet on a coin, you write divine and you put your face on the front. This is how you tell the world Caesar is God. He's the divine. He's the son of God. He's the savior. Um, and this is a point I really want you to see, okay? So as we read the Christmas story, the longer Caesar Augustus reigned, the more he was worshiped as God. Again, God with a capital G to the people. He stood over all of the Roman gods. He was the chief god. Uh, He declared cities throughout the Roman Empire to be cities where he is to be worshipped. And in fact, they would create podiums in these cities. Someday we'll go to Ephesus together and you'll see these podiums. And he would come in and he would stand on the podium as a living god. And you would offer incense. You would burn incense to Caesar Augustus, the living god. Those cities that were set aside for Caesar worship were known as ecclesia. Ecclesia. Remember that word, ecclesia. In fact, check this out. Uh, this is uh, an inscription found in one of the cities, a city known as Priene. Uh, it's in modern day Turkey, um, Priene, just off of the sea. Uh, and in 9 BC, we find this inscription at the height of uh, Caesar Augustus' reign. Just listen to the language. The most divine Caesar who we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward disillusion, Augustus restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aura. Whereas providence, which has regulated, that's like a, a, uh, providence is like a name for uh, like the gods. Okay, so whereas providence, which has regulated our existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us the emperor Augustus, whom it is filled with strength and welfare of men, who being sent to us and our descendants is savior and put an end to war and has set all things in order. 
So he goes from emperor to God in the eyes of the people. And having become God manifest, what's that mean? Like God in the flesh, God incarnate. And having become God manifest, uh, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times and surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him. Whereas the birthday of God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. And that word good news in Greek is the word euangelion, where we get our word evangelical or the word gospel. Now, the inscription mentions his birthday. Um, Get this, uh, uh, for good reason. Every year, Caesar Augustus had a birthday. I know, shocking. But here's where things are interesting. The Roman Senate wanted to honor him and say, okay, this is, he's a god. He's a living god. He's God manifest. We want to honor him. And, and when better to do that than on his birthday? So they set aside a 12-day celebration for his birthday that they called Advent. On the first day of Caesar, my true love gave to me. You get it. You get a sense of this. He had a choir of 27 boys and 27 girls who would follow him around and sing worship songs to him. Uh, Do you get a sense of how famous Caesar Augustus is? We have found uh, over 50,000 portraits, and those are the ones that have survived. We have found temples built in his honor, shrines built in his honor, altars where he would make sacrifices. Uh, Roman citizens were commanded to burn incense and to pray for him. He was called the cosmic savior. Uh, He was considered the divine inaugurator of the golden age of peace and security. We read a bunch of these quotes already. He was called heaven's shining star. We have coins that simply say the God Augustus or the divine Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the son of God who is also God. Caesar Augustus is the one who wipes away our sins. Caesar Augustus is the savior of the human race. This is how they talked about him. Uh, In historical records, we have a number of different historians, poets, and writers rising up to sing the praises of Augustus. Um, Notice how they describe him. Here's uh, the poet Horace, Roman poet Horace. The best guardian of Rome's people, dearest boon, a household power adored with prayers and wine. They prayed to him. He writes, you, O Caesar, have wiped away our sins. Uh, Virgil says this. Augustus Caesar, son of God, the savior of the human race. Caesar is to be honored as a god with sacrifices and with hymns. Now, um, that's our history. Uh, maybe you're wondering, what is, why does the New Testament do what it does? Why does Luke do what Luke does? Why does Luke use, take all of this Caesar language? Again, this is kind of shocking for some I learned all this. Kind of shocking for us. But in the first century world, they knew this about what, what the emperor Caesar Augustus was declaring. They had his coins moving through their country. They knew all, what, all the things, all the claims he was making. So why does Luke, when he's writing his gospel, why does he do what he does? Same question we asked last week. Why does Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish audience predominantly, talk so much about King Herod? Uh, and the, the answer is really the same. Matthew and Luke, just they use two different perspectives, but both of them want you to know that throughout the rest of this gospel, you're going to be forced, you and I are going to be forced with the same question. We have to choose. Who's your Savior and who's your Lord? 
Uh, Before Jesus, there was already somebody who called himself Savior. They called him Lord with a capital L. There was already salvation, a whole empire of salvation. There was already pox or peace. There was already gospel uh, or euangelion. There was already a 12-day celebration of this God's birth. And Luke tells us that 1,500 miles away, in the 25th year of Caesar Augustus' reign, a baby is being born, and this baby is somehow going to make all the difference. Luke is setting up a conflict. You're going to see it throughout his gospel when you read it now. Um, Luke is setting up a conflict between two kings and two kingdoms, two different understandings of peace, two different understandings of salvation, two very different ways of seeing the whole world. Now, with that, uh, let's go back to Luke and just read a couple pieces of it again and see if you read it a bit, uh, a little more nuanced. Verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news. Random word, do you think? I think not. It's the same word that, was, that the poets and the historians were using of Caesar Augustus. See what Luke is doing here. You got to choose which one's truly good news. And then he adds a caveat here and he says this good news will be this good news of Jesus will be good news for all the people. Was the good news of Caesar Augustus good news for all people? No way. Especially not in Israel at the time of the birth of Jesus where you had loved ones that were killed and made demonstration by the Roman emperor. This was, this was good news if you were elite. It was good news if you were powerful. It was good news if you were Roman. It was not good news if you were Jewish. It was not good news if you were poor. Uh, and yet the angel comes in and says, the good news of Jesus will be good news for all the people. Verse 11, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. You understand why people carrying around this message years later will be killed for carrying around this message. You can't call someone else savior. We already have a savior. His name is Caesar Augustus. He's our savior. He's our Lord. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, pox, to men on whom his favor rests. There was already peace. Men and women, there was already peace. There was already salvation. There was already a savior. There was already a Lord. Do you see what Luke is doing? You got to choose. You got to choose. You cannot bow down to both. Um, Do you see how the Christmas story, this is a point we made last week too, but do you see how the Christmas story isn't just some safe, romantic, idealistic, little kind of cute, cuddly story? This is a divine act of rebellion. This is insurrection. This is uh, revolution. You carry around this, this Luke's letter with you, and the wrong person sees the letter, it's you on a cross. And Luke is saying these two kingdoms and these two, king, these two kings are destined to collide. Uh, later on uh, in the New Testament, um, this is exactly what starts happening. Right under Caesar, Augustus knows uh, we have a 
a new message that is, begins to be proclaimed by a group of radical revolutionaries who called themselves, well, actually, they called themselves disciples. They said they followed the way. Outsiders said, you're Christians, right? You're many Jesuses, you're many Christ. Um, but they started saying things like, well, you hear everyone saying Caesar is Savior? No, no, no. Jesus is Savior. Oh, Caesar is Lord? No, no. Jesus is Lord. Caesar brings peace? No. Look around you. Does it feel peaceful? No, you're constantly living in paranoia and fear. You're constantly watching uh, to make sure you're not saying the wrong thing. Caesar's not peace. He's not, he's not bringing peace. Jesus brings peace. Jesus brings, his kingdom is salvation. Jesus is the good news is good news of Christ, not good news of Caesar Augustus. They start gathering, and they start gathering in houses, and then those houses started becoming overfilled because they kept inviting people in who shouldn't be there, uh, people who were slaves, people who women were invited in, uh, poor were invited in, Gentiles, non-Jewish people were invited in. They started calling these gatherings ecclesia. Uh, you won't recognize that word probably because that's not what your New Testament says. It's a Greek word, and the New Testament's going to translate that Greek word, ecclesia, the same word that was used by Caesar Augustus to talk about his cities of worship. The New Testament's going to translate that word, church. You see why this is so important? See why we got to reclaim the Christmas story from just uh, cute, cuddly baby Jesus, six, eight pounds, six ounce, cute, cuddly baby Jesus. Uh, we got to reclaim it. What do we, we want to teach? So right now, next door, we have a bunch of our little ones, um, and uh, they're learning things. And a question we have to ask, when we tell our kids the gospel, what are we telling them? Do we want our kids to grow up to believe that to be a Christian simply means that we tip really well? We're really, really polite. We never cut people off. We don't swear. We have good sportsmanship. Is, is, is this what we want? This is, do we, do we want to use language like this? Is just what good people do? Or do we want our kids to be so utterly compelled by King Jesus that they are willing to give up the comfortable ways of living to embrace a subversive and radical uh, uh, revolutionary acts of, of love. That when the world says step on people, our kids are saying, no, 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 don't step on people, pick them up. And when the world says crush people, our, our kids are saying, no, don't crush people, love, love them. And when the world says money and power, those are how we have success. Our little ones are saying, no, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's not money and power um, that brings success. It's humility and generosity and love. What do we want our kids to grow up believing? That, um, that to follow Jesus means you sign up for a comfortable, safe little life? Or that when you follow Jesus, you sign up for a, a life of radical love? Which is it? Comfortable, safe? You can't be comfortable and safe in middle school. You just can't, right? You can't, you can't be it in high school. You can't be comfortable and safe in uh, college. You cannot be comfortable and safe in business, not if you follow Jesus, not truly, right? Like, like it throws everything off. Uh, you, 
you cannot stand for what's right in the world and also be comfortable and safe. Uh, and many of you have experienced this firsthand. You know this. Uh, this is the Christmas story. What do we want our kids to grow up to believe? That Jesus has come to make them safe? Or that Jesus has come to inaugurate a revolution in which he is making everything new? Which is it? And which is worth his life? Um, it, just a moment of transparency. Uh, and I say this from me, not for you. Um, so this is coming from me. I don't speak this on behalf of us. But in my heart, and I hope some of you agree with this, uh, truthfully, but in my heart, uh, honestly, I get, I get tired after every major world event, uh, every crisis, every war, um, prominent religious people standing up and speaking on behalf of all of us and saying things that look nothing like what I see in Jesus. Nothing. Uh, I, the, to see Jesus' name used in such inappropriate ways, there are times where it just breaks my heart. Uh, and th- I have to think, like, how do I now redeem this for people? How do I help my friends who are like, on the verge, on their way out? They want nothing to do with this. How do I help them see that this is not reflective of the Jesus in the Bible? It's just not. I get tired, if I'm honest. Um, that, and I wonder if, like, how many Christians have we really missed the point, uh, especially those who are speaking on behalf of all of us, have missed the point. And I'm not saying that they're not like, good people or that they're not going to heaven. Um, I'm just saying that that's what they made the point, just to be good people who go to heaven. But there's so much more. Um, there's so much more that Jesus came to set us free. He came to reconcile all things to himself. He, he came to inaugurate something where everything is being made new. Uh, I, I, I get frustrated how often the, this, this message of revolutionary love gets made into something really soundbitey and boring. Um, I actually believe that the, the gospel of Jesus is the most compelling story that this world has ever heard, and we just have to set it free. Um, it's, it's, it, on its own, it's utterly compelling. I think I'm in good company. Uh, I think at South Harbor, one of the things I keep hearing uh, from you all is that this is what you want to reclaim. You want a, a more beautiful church, a church that dreams big dreams for God. Uh, I believe that it should start with us, and I believe it should start this Christmas, um, Our world, I believe, is desperate for a community who embodies this, who puts this on display. Uh, Because Caesar may wear different masks in our world. He does wear different masks. There's always different kinds of versions of Caesar Augustus out there. Um, And the question is not changed. Who do we bow down to? Who do we give our allegiance to? Who's our Lord? Which gospel is truly good news? You cannot bow down to both. Um, But... For those who are in, uh, who are saying, yeah, I think I'm interested, Uh, this timid, weak um, gospel, we can set it free for the radical, revolutionary message that it truly is. And uh, it will be difficult, but what a ride. What a ride. Um, Would you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Lord. Would you inspire your church once again? Jesus, we uh, confess that uh, these stories, uh, myself included, they become so familiar that we miss the power. Lord, um, 
these stories become so tamed down that we forget exactly the radical statement, the statement that you will be born in uh, scandal. Uh, Lord, we just miss it. We miss it. And uh, in the consequence, Lord, we miss, for many of us, uh, this message just becomes boring and we forget, Jesus, that you have come to give life and give it abundantly. Uh, and so, Lord, I pray that uh, anyone this morning who has joined this gathering, who right now feels like um, they are the victim of uh, an abuse of power, uh, Lord, would you remind them that you bring salvation, true salvation. Uh, Lord, for anyone in this room who just needs to be woken up to how good you really are, uh, Lord, I pray they would hear that. And Lord, for anyone who's gathered here this morning uh, that needs to be reminded that when we sing these songs, we are joining uh, our spiritual ancestors whose voices echo down the canyons of time to our um, contemporary Christians who are meeting right now, many of them uh, in, in basements, in caves, so that they can proclaim this message. Would we do so with the same passion in our freedom that they do in their chains? We pray this, Jesus, in your name. And everybody said, amen. Would you? For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. On Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.